Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowick. Today, my guest is U.S. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, who currently represents New York's 18th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives and was first elected to Congress in November 2012. His top priorities include national security, protecting our environment, ensuring our veterans get the benefits they have earned, and combating the heroin and opioid epidemic. Representative Maloney currently serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, and the House Agriculture Committee. The congressman has a distinguished background in business and public service, having served as a senior advisor in President Bill Clinton's White House as a part of a team that balanced the budget and paid down the debt, all while creating over 800,000 jobs in New York. When he left the White House, he built his own business in the high-tech industry, creating hundreds of jobs for his home state. Sean then served as a senior staff member to two Democratic governors of New York, focusing on education and infrastructure projects where he oversaw 13 state agencies and departments, including those responsible for all homeland security, state police, and emergency management operations. Most recently, in addition to serving the citizens of New York's 18th district, he was elected as the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee by his colleagues in the U.S. House of Representatives. Congressman Maloney is married to his husband, Randy Flork. They have three children and currently reside in Cold Spring, New York. Congressman Sean Patrick Maloney, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Wonderful to be with you. You know, before we get started, I just want to recognize you have had a long and distinguished career in public service. But before we get into the meat and potatoes of today's political environment, let's go back to how all of this began for you. I mean, you grew up in what one might call a small traditional Irish Catholic family in Hanover, New Hampshire, with six siblings. And tell us a little bit about your family life and growing up. Oh, you know, it was... um it was wonderful. I, you know, my, I'm blessed with uh, wonderful parents um, who, you know, uh, really just were there for us uh, every day of our lives, uh, who worked hard, who were good people, who um, were involved in their community. Um, they, were, they were a real blessing in my life. And, and yeah, there were six of us. Um, my sister um, uh, was born with a serious developmental disability um, and was in a group home setting by the time, you know, I was old enough to really know what was going on. So it was really five brothers uh, at home. I was the youngest, uh, which is a good thing to be uh, in a big family. And, uh, and you know, we, I grew up in Hanover, New Hampshire. So we were in a community that had an Ivy League college uh, down, the, down the street. Um, and so it was, a, it, was a, it was a wonderful little town, but it also had very sophisticated and intellectual people um, who were at the top of uh, their fields in, in many cases and went to public, uh, went to public, you know, elementary school and middle school and high school and, and then um, very nearly stayed and went to Dartmouth like uh, two of my brothers had, but I felt the need to 
get out of town and and go beyond <laughs> uh you know the confines of Hanover New Hampshire which is a which is a wonderful wonderful place to be a kid it does not really prepare you for the complexity and diversity of the world however and so i think i knew on some level um that i needed to i needed to go uh and so i went to Georgetown and UVA and uh, one from there. Well, you know, it's interesting. I spent a summer in Hanover, and it is quite an idyllic place for sure. Uh, so you were uh, fortunate to grow up in such a beautiful, uh, beautiful small city. You know, you met your husband Randy in 1992, and you were legally married in 2014, and you have three children of your own. Did growing up in that large family impact your desire to be a father? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, um, you know, yeah, we had a, Randy and I had a 22 year engagement and we've been, uh, we've been married for six years. Um, but, uh, yeah, look at, I mean, I think when you grow up in a big family, you're used to having a lot of people around and you, I, I, I joke that it's the gin rummy theory of life that the easier way to, 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 to succeed is to just pick up all the cards. And so you just put, you just put more, more cards in your hand and you actually have more to work with. And I think life can be that way sometimes, particularly, uh, in a big family. I like, I like having people around. I always have. And, uh, and we've been blessed to have three wonderful, wonderful children come into our lives. I mean, really Randy has been, um, so central in that and, um, and, um, it's the best thing we've ever done. Yeah. Well, as we say in the South, you certainly have not let the grass grow under your feet. Um, (laughs) You've been involved in the political arena most of your adult life. You were first elected to Congress in 2012. And when you made the decision to seek election, what issues at the time drove that decision? And were you able to execute on delivering solutions once you arrived in Congress? Well, you know, I think I got elected to Congress at a point in my career where it was sort of a surprise to me almost that that I ended up in Congress. I had been able to do some interesting work in the White House for President Clinton um, at the state level for working for a couple of governors of New York. But I had been in the private sector as well, helping to found a technology company and working as a lawyer. Um, and and I, I think I was blessed to get to Congress at a moment when, one, I I could be elected as a, as a, as an openly gay person. I mean, I was, I'm, I'm to the, I'm until a couple of weeks ago, the only gay person ever elected to Congress from New York. Um, we've been blessed by two more members of our delegation who are, who are LGBT this cycle. And so I, I just think I had good timing that way. It was the 2012 election when Barack Obama was being reelected. I was able to beat a Republican incumbent. Um, but I, it also it also meant that I was representing a district that was a true swing district and and a district that ended up voting for Donald Trump. And so I think it has forced me in order to be effective to work across party lines, to work across lines of difference. Um, otherwise, I, I wouldn't get anything done. All, all the town supervisors I work with are Republicans. The county executives are Republicans. Until recently, I was really one of only a couple uh, elected Democrats in the area, although it's 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 increasing. Thank goodness. But um but I think that perspective has been valuable in a, in a, in this era of polarization, where some of us still try to find common ground. It's getting harder, um, particularly when your opponents are so extreme, um, as we've seen recently. But but there are still a lot of good people, particularly at the local level, who want to help you get things done. So we just we were able to just do some major things for the Hudson River, uh, preserving this extraordinary natural area that I represent, um, and some other things that are really meaningful to me. And so when I look at my time in Congress. 
it's not the stuff you get asked about on MSNBC that ends up mattering. It's the work you do for individual constituents. It's the bills you do that help veterans or build infrastructure or clean up the river or get, get good drinking water to people. Uh, that's what I'm proud of. You know, during your first uh, impeachment hearings of Donald Trump, you had what one might refer to as a direct exchange between yourself and the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sondland, regarding Trump's communication channel with the Ukrainian government. It was obvious to me that the ambassador was making every effort possible to be as vague with his answers as he could. Looking back on that exchange that you had and similar engagements with other witnesses before your committees, do you ever ask yourself why Donald Trump's supporters are so willing to sacrifice their personal integrity in support of him? Well, you know, look, uh, you know, I, it's, it's a dangerous thing to start questioning people's motives, but I do think in the case of Ambassador Sondland, he was so clearly being evasive. Um, and I was just, I was just sick of smug, you know, billionaires thinking the rules don't apply to them. Um, you know, it was, it was, he had, he had come before the committee in closed session. His, his answers were, um, were, you know, a disaster. He had to clean it up with a subsequent uh, sworn statement that some lawyer wrote because he knew his, his client had made such a mess of it uh, the first time. And then he came before the committee um, with a whole new set of uh, testimony. And, but even at that late hour, he was trying to dance around some pretty straightforward questions and and luckily, you know, I was I was you know being a being a former Wilkie Farr and Kirkland and Ellis, you know, uh, lawyer or partner and working at Oric, some good some good law firms had trained me to just remember the question I asked and to wait for the answer and and keep going until you got it. And that's all you saw in that exchange. And I think that the the success of it was simply that I think there's a desire out there for accountability to have to have people accountable for what they're doing. And so your question about why they do it, you know, I think there's some old stories here around power and money and fame. And, um, and it's, 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 it's been taken to a level that uh, has created um, a real mess and, and we're all living with the consequences of it. And so, you know, of all the things I'm looking forward to with the new administration, it's a return to some basic values around accountability and, and decency and uh, integrity. But your question to Ambassador Sondland, getting to the, the bottom of this, what one might even refer to as a back-channel communication, which is something that's acceptable in the world of diplomacy, he continued to be extraordinarily vague on that subject. And what was the importance of you getting that direct answer from him? Well, you know, and I, I should, I should pause and I should have done this up front and just acknowledge you and your husband and, and your contributions to uh, public service and to our country. Um, and of course you understand, you know, the, the roles that people who serve as ambassadors are supposed to play. And in this case, the, you know, Ambassador Sondland had inserted himself into, into a situation where there were professional diplomats like Bill Taylor and others who were working in a very complex environment with an active shooting war where people were losing their lives. Russian forces are in the country. Uh, this is literally the front lines. Uh, and, and he was crashing around in that, threatening, um, you know, on this, as, as, as Ambassador uh, Hill said, um, you know, running a political errand. Um, and, 
and and then and then pretending it was otherwise. And so the whole situation was about as awful as you can imagine, except that we've become numb to this from from President Trump, where we were withholding critical, crucial military aid um, to to an ally, um, really in in you know with the wolf at the door, um, staring down Russian aggression, uh, and for the worst possible motives. And so I just think that what you saw there was was an example of where. There were some great people like uh, Bill Taylor, you know, toughest class at West Point, by the way, I represent West Point, who who then volunteered for the infantry in Vietnam, which is not something he had to do. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a man who dedicated his life to American national security, he was forced to deal with these with these dilettantes and 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 and, and you know, errand boys for the president who were trying to dig up a political smear while they were trying to do um, critically important national security work. And I think you just saw that contrast on display. I'm also proud, by the way, that that I was the one who asked the question of Alexander Vindman, um, you know, what made him think he could stand up to the most powerful person in the world. And he gave that beautiful answer about his dad. And he said, you know, this is America and here right matters. And I think those, those exchanges reminded us uh, that there were, just great, dedicated, talented people working in the Foreign Service, in the White House, in the national security structure. Um, and they were they were doing their best, but they were being overrun by these by these uh, disastrous appointees of the Trump administration who were engaged in some real real misconduct and putting our national security and the security of our allies at risk. And um, and I think history will judge them all very harshly. Um, I know that the politics of the moment, can can make people think the president got away with it, but the truth is, um, history will judge him very harshly. Well, fortunately, on next week's show, I'll be speaking with Ambassador Michael McFall, so we'll jump a little deeper into the Russian-Ukrainian situation. But I'd like to move on a little bit here. Donald Trump has been responsible for implementing direct discrimination against LGBTQ persons in the military. He has supported workplace discrimination through an amicus brief filed with the Supreme Court, along with a host of other hostilities aimed at imposing hardships on the gay community. And in recent days, he finalized an HHS regulation that will permit discrimination against LGBTQ people, religious minorities, women, all in programs related to foster care, adoption, HIV and SDI prevention, youth homelessness, refugee resettlement, elder care programs and more. Since your time in Congress, we have not seen a more aggressive approach to direct discrimination of LGBTQ people and minority populations in this country than during Trump's time in the White House. What can these communities expect going forward, and how quickly can some of these wrongs be righted? Well, you know, help is on the way, and I think you're going to see all of this stuff uh, reversed um, that can be done with executive action, you'll see it done very quickly by the new administration. We also have something called the Congressional Review Act, which allows us to set aside any regulations that have been promulgated in the last 60 days. Uh, I'm exploring that right now for the regulation you mentioned. So I, I plan to do that if it if it hasn't been introduced already, um, which would set that regulation aside um, with respect to adoption, which is just a mean-spirited effort to to dress up discrimination as uh, as religious uh, faith. You know, it is one of the great 
cynical acts of this administration to disguise discrimination as as religious practice. Um, when we deal with this already in other civil rights contexts, it's not like we haven't thought of this before. You know, someone can say, I'm not going to serve Jews because, you know, I believe that, you know, Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus. Um, we don't we don't allow people selling pizza to refuse service to Jews because they have a sincere religious belief, however, you know, you might feel about it. We have exceptions for people in commerce. We have we deal with this. Uh, we don't make, by the same token, we're not going to make the Catholic Church marry same-sex couples. We don't impose on religious practice, but we do have, we do draw limits when people are engaged in commerce um, and they're holding out, out their services to the public. And so what we've always been asking for, and it's just really important that people realize this, is 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 in the Equality Act and in other measures under federal law, we just want the same protection as as has been afforded to other groups that have faced historic discrimination. And it will it will provide the same protections for people who are practicing uh, their religion in ways that uh, you know we might find objectionable, but they are their right to do so. And 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 so it's just the same. It's just, and 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 what the Trump administration and others have tried to do with rules like the one you mentioned is to expand the uh, allowable discrimination against the LGBT community in ways that we would not allow it to be. Uh, it w- we would not allow it to exist in, in other contexts like race or gender or religion. Um, so we just got to hold the line on that. It's wonderful that the Supreme Court wrote um, wrote us into Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. That was historic decision, but it's not a substitute for the Equality Act, which will pass in the first 100 days of this administration. And I believe Joe Biden will sign into law and we'll have a real champion for our rights and our equality once again in the White House. So you're confident the Equality Act will pass? I believe it will. I can't, uh, you know, taking control of the United States Senate I, has been uh, really important. We did pass it already out of the House, as you know, um, uh, and we will do that again. I know the president has pledged to sign it. I think you'll see it move in the Senate as well, and and I believe we'll we'll get the votes. Congressman, I've seen your testimony in Congress on how you became a parent. And unfortunately, the circumstances around the adoption of your first child had some unpleasant history. The abuse of illegal drugs, and in many cases, prescription drugs, in the United States has created quite a burden on our healthcare system and the general welfare of the American people. These abuses result in crime, death, broken families, and they cost millions of dollars in taxpayer funding that might better be used for other purposes. Do you feel we're appropriately addressing these social challenges and what can we do better moving forward? Yeah, it's a huge issue. I mean, the opioid epidemic has just devastated so many families, um, whole communities. Um, We had a terrible problem in my district. Um, Orange County, New York, for example, had one of the highest overdose death rates in the state uh, for a number of years. Um, Luckily, I think we are sort of on the backside of that mountain um, and we have made a lot of progress uh, there needs to be accountability, by the way, for the people who who profited uh, from this legal drug trade, and and there's some tough questions to answer. But I think the larger question you're asking is so important. I mean, we we still understand so little about addiction and compulsive behaviors. Um, we still treat it as as a as an issue of I don't know willpower or of uh, or of or of personal decision making. When in fact, I think it has much much deeper uh, causes. Um, and, and I think if we would be such a better country, if we could understand and more effectively treat, um, you know, compulsive behaviors and addictions, um, there's so much pain and, 
and damage out there in so many families from alcohol addiction and abuse and from other drugs. I do think, however, that things like legalizing marijuana can actually be part of the uh, solution if it's properly regulated um, and, 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 and done in the way that I think is sensible. But I, but I feel like, uh, I feel like we, we can do so much more. And I, and I think there's, there's a lot of good work that's been done on the federal level on this. Um, honestly, it, it is, I think like everything in our country, there's a, there's a, there's a racial component because I think the opioid epidemic affected so many rural white communities. There's a newfound appreciation on the other side of the aisle for treating addiction as a, as a public health issue, um, and not as a criminal justice issue, which I think, you know, we certainly rankle people who were treated to, you know, the war on drugs when it was, seen as a, a problem in, in communities of color. But if there is a silver lining to the opioid epidemic, it has it has created a broad bipartisan consensus around better research, better understanding. I've passed some legislation on this, um, better ways we make drugs more tamper-proof and less subject to addiction um, and speed FDA approvals when they've got sort of these, these types of technologies built into them. There are some smart things we can do. But at the end of the day, we need to understand the brain better. We need to understand addiction better um, because this is this is a huge problem in our country. So tomorrow, we are going to um, find ourselves with a new government. Joe Biden will be sworn in as the new president of the United States, and Kamala Harris will be sworn in as the vice president. And for the first time since 2009, the Democratic Party will control the majority of the House, the Senate, and the executive branch. However, only two weeks ago, a large group of domestic terrorists participated in an insurrection in an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States and to assassinate elected representatives. These actions resulted in the murder of Capitol Hill police officer Brian Sicknick, the physical beating of other first responders, the desecration of the American flag. They destroyed property, broke windows, caused multiple injuries with rudimentary weapons, and some of these treasonous crimes that took place were committed by people of uniform and are a flagrant and vulgar violation of the oath. They swore to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Do you have full faith that the perpetrators responsible for these heinous crimes will be held accountable? And how involved will the legislative branch be in this process? Well, you, you you broke it down pretty good. I mean, first of all, I'm not going to exhale until until uh, until Joe Biden's hand is on the Bible. Um, I think all of us knew uh, that we would have to beat Donald Trump at the ballot box on November 3rd, but then there would be this slow motion uh, disaster that would be his refusal to concede and to transfer power in a graceful, dignified way, like every one of his predecessors. And here we are. And it's been even worse than we could have imagined. You know, I was there on the floor uh, when all that when all that happened. It was an ugly and and sacrilegious act uh, de defiling those sacred spaces. Obviously, we can never replace, um, you know, the lives lost. We can never heal all the wounds. But there must be accountability, and I do believe you'll see an aggressive, a robust uh, federal response tracking these folks down holding them accountable. There's an there's a m enormous amount of evidence, uh, video evidence uh, of, of who did what, and that will allow us to make the individuals who did these things accountable. More broadly, the real accountability needs to last, uh, needs to lie also with the members of Congress who participated in this 
incendiary lie that the election was stolen, who whipped it up, who spread it around, who, who summoned this mob to Washington and, and, and asked it to go uh, to the Capitol. I mean, there are a bunch of my colleagues who, 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 who've been riding this tiger and, uh, and it's wrong and, and they need to be held accountable. Well, let's explore that a little further. In a recent interview with Jonathan Capehart of The Sunday Show, you mentioned there are some members of Congress that were actually, and I'm going to quote you, incompetent. There have been calls by some activists and other members of Congress that these people be removed. But the House of Representatives has only ever removed five sitting members of Congress, and three of those were for fighting for the Confederate Army against the Union. The other two were convicted of bribery, conspiracy, and fraud. Are there any current members of Congress you would consider are worthy of removal based on the recent insurrection that took place? Well, you know, let's make let's make a distinction between, you know, people being incompetent or stupid and people engaging in criminal acts. I mean, you know, Congress has a long history of having incompetent, stupid people uh, <laughs> show up um, in both parties, I'm sure. But particularly right now, there's a there's a bumper crop of crazy that has come to the Congress uh, under this Trump banner. I mean, I'm talking about people who believe in QAnon conspiracy theories. I'm talking about people who brag about bringing guns to the Capitol. I'm talking about people who are screaming at Capitol police officers who days earlier saved their lives because they're being asked to walk through metal detectors because they themselves bragged about bringing guns to the Capitol. People who won't wear masks, who are getting people sick uh, with the coronavirus. My colleague, Bonnie Watson Coleman, was among three Democratic lawmakers who contracted the coronavirus um, because we were sheltering with people who wouldn't wear masks in the height of this insurrection and stuck in, in a room that was overcrowded for hours. It's no wonder that, um, that people contracted the coronavirus and she's a cancer survivor. She, it's a very serious situation. So the, the level of, the level of, um, just selfishness and, uh, and, and recklessness is, is offensive, but, Look, that's for the voters to decide. I, I think it's a, another matter altogether if people are guilty of, say, in, in, you know, sedition. I mean, there is a federal crime of sedition. If you look at what Mo Brooks, for example, did at that rally, or people like Rudy Giuliani, for that matter, uh, they were clearly inciting violence, and they got what they wanted. And the question is whether they'll be held criminally accountable for that. I think there needs to be an investigation of what the members did. Um, there are obviously these rumors of giving tours to some of the people who may have been in the crowd the next day. I don't, I don't know whether that's like going to pan out or not. I, there were, there were obviously members. I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that. There's colleagues of mine who saw it, who were concerned by it. It's being investigated by Capitol police at the end of the day. It, you know, I think it just depends on who did what, uh, but, but I think the most important thing for our country is that all of the Republicans, and there were more than more than 130 of them in the house, a majority of the Republican caucus in the House voted to set aside the results of the Electoral College. That is participating in the big lie that the election was stolen. That is at the, that is at the heart of this violence and, and madness we've seen. Those people need to look in the mirror and ask themselves what the hell they're doing because they are doing great harm to our country. And some of them may just be too dumb to realize what they're doing. I think a lot of them are, are, are being cynical and think that they can participate in this kind of nonsense and there won't be a consequence. Um, but, but we should all wake up and, and see what is, what has happened as a result. Well, let's look to the future. And by the way, 
let me congratulate you on being elected as the new chairman of the DCCC. You know, some people might ask why you would want to take on that responsibility coming off the 2020 election. However, there was a huge bright spot for Democrats, and that is being the state of Georgia. I mean, not only did Georgia vote for Biden, they elected Warnock and Ossoff, and they added an additional Democrat to the Georgia congressional delegation, Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux. And on the flip side, the biggest loss for the Democrats was California, where three incumbents lost very tight house races. So what's your focus going to be going into 2022? And are there any states that raise any particular concern for you? Well, I, I'm really excited to be in this new position. I appreciate the confidence my colleagues have placed in me, I, I should say, because um, I know you're a trailblazer, uh, that this is the highest elected position. This is the highest position in the House of Representatives any openly gay person has ever held. So we're we're making a little history yeah, as congratulations. well. So, well, look, at it's I mean, I, you know, I think it's just another sign that our community um, can 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 sit at every table and we can we can do every job. We have to put ourselves forward and do it. So I encourage all those folks out there who might be thinking about whether they can can do one thing or another because they're LGBT should 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 have a little faith because I'm telling you, you can. And but here's the deal. Um, we look, we 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 you know, it was a mixed bag in the House uh, this election, for sure. I think that holding control is no small thing. And so ultimately, you're, you either have the gavels or you don't in the House of Representatives. Uh, we do, and we can run the place. So therefore, uh, that's a win. The The Senate, uh, was a slow motion win there, but thank God we now have the gavels over there. By the way, that means you're going to get a real investigation of the insurrection and everything else. You'll have, you'll have serious people um, asking serious questions. And obviously, we control the White House. So, uh, I think when you look to 2022, the, the reason we're going to hold this majority and expand it is because fundamentally we are more in touch with the values and we represent the values uh, of the voters in the, in the districts that are in play. Um, the, the Trump brand, um, you know, we were talking about addiction a little bit earlier. It, it's like an addiction, this, this, this Trump stuff. Um, and like all addictions, it's leading to a, it's leading to a, a crescendo that is going to be ugly and, uh, and, and yeah, destructive. It's been ugly. And well, and even politically, I mean, if you look at what's happened to the Republican party, they are separating themselves from, um, the kind of swing voters. I'm thinking in particular of, um, you know, suburban voters, particularly female voters, higher education levels, those those have often been the voters that that swing one way or the other that have supported the Republican majority in the House in the past. Um, that brand is toxic among those voters. And and if you look at issue after issue, whether you're talking about overturning Roe v. Wade, whether you're talking about which they're trying to do, whether you whether you think about gun gun safety, gun violence in America, when you think about climate change and science, uh, how how to address the pandemic, when you think about uh, major issues. We are far better positioned than the Republican Party is. And so when you look at the gains we made in 2018, um, yes, that was uh, a reaction to Donald Trump in many ways. But I don't think there's any reason in the world to think that those gains um, aren't durable. And yes, we lost a few seats in 2020, but but it was on top of a net 40 seat gain two years earlier. And so the fact is, we're still way up from where we were a couple of years back. The suburbs uh, and swing districts have been coming our way for a decade or more. 
I, I represent one of those districts. Take my word for it. Um, you know, the issue of LGBT equality, for example, is now, I think, pretty baked in. Um, and we're not going backwards. And so on issue after issue in my district and other swing districts, uh, we're just better positioned than the than the red team. And and that if they if they wise up and try to bring their party back to what it used to be, we'll be in a competitive fight again. I, I think that as long as they are going to promote this Trump brand, which has been so so disastrous in terms of issues of race and uh, and and the incendiary rhetoric and the harshness of it. Um, I'll, I'll, I think we're going to do pretty good, and 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 we'll also have a big advantage, which is we'll have uh, we'll have a, a president who is a healing, decent, um, empathetic person who's not a polarizing figure. It'll be very hard for them to demonize Joe Biden, and God willing, we'll have the pandemic in the rearview mirror, and we'll have an economy in rebound. I actually feel pretty good about the 2022 cycle, and uh, and I intend to I intend to win that election uh, in the House. And I think we'll expand our majority and we'll allow this president to have even more capacity to do good things and get our country back to where it needs to be. Well, we certainly love the optimism. And, you know, I could talk to you all day, but unfortunately, um, we don't have the time. And before we wrap up here, I do have to ask, you know, keeping in line with the title of my podcast here, Breaking Protocol, was there a time when you intentionally broke protocol and how did that work out for you? <laughs> Well, uh, uh, you know, listen, I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm not exactly, um, uh, very interesting that way. I, I think that I have a, I have a, I have an unconventional, uh, life in many ways, but I'm also a pretty, pretty, pretty boring guy. And when, in many ways, I mean, I, I think the the biggest thing I do is I wear jeans sometime on the house floor and I get yelled at, or I I'll answer a phone call and have, you know, there's some very nice, uh, people who work on the floor who gently remind members of Congress when they're, when they're breaking uh, the rules. And so there was a day when I was on the phone with my AirPods in, I was wearing jeans and I had an overcoat on, which is a triple violation. And the woman came up to me and she said, Congressman, please, that's three. Come on. And <laughs> I just had to walk off the house floor. But look, at this point, uh, no, at this point, you know, I think trying to maintain a level of civility and be an adult in the room is really important. It's hard. I mean, I, I've, I've felt real anger over the last week at the actions of some of my colleagues that I think led to this violence, uh, just step by step, inciting this lie, um, watching their recklessness on things like mask wearing, on ignoring uh, pleas to social, be socially distant on the floor, follow the rules. Um, it's, it's infuriating. And when you, when you see what happened to our capital, violently attacked, you know, no group of Americans has ever done that in 244 years. Never. I mean, the British soldiers did it in 1812, but no group of Americans have ever violently attacked our own capital. I, I, I don't blame anybody for being angry about it. I'm angry about it. But the road back has got to be um, by being civil to one another and by having real debates and having some real respect for your, 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 your political opponents, if that's possible anymore. So I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's more expansive answer than you wanted, but, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I, well, I don't know. I, to play I, by the rules. I, I, I think at least not wearing jeans on the house floor is something that's probably a pretty easy accomplishment moving forward. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us today on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. And thank all of you for listening. If you've enjoyed our conversation, please click and subscribe for notification of future episodes. And if you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or for download to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. 
Have a beautiful day and many blessings.